From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. Janet, let me ask you a question. Of the people with whom you come into contact at work, what percentage would you estimate have graduated from university? Hmm. Well, I was a journalist specializing in economics for a long time, and I would say a high proportion of my colleagues had a degree when they were journalists. But of course, in the broadcast media and in the newspaper business, there's lots of people with different roles, so they wouldn't necessarily be graduates. But yes, overall, I would say high, maybe 60%. Yeah, I'd view it as high too, particularly here at MGI. But one of the great things about doing MGI research and you know, quite frankly, research in general is learning more about the real world. And it turns out in the U.S., where I'm based, only about one-third of the workforce holds a four-year college degree. Yeah, and I actually looked up the figure for the U.K., and it's a little over 40%. So the majority of workers don't have a degree. But nevertheless, if you look at job postings, they often say you need a university degree. But lots of people I know who are really good at their jobs aren't doing anything related to what they actually studied at university. And if that's the case, you could wonder about what a university degree really signals, especially in a place like the United States, where students often have to pay a considerable amount of money to attend college. Yeah, and and you can also ask, what does it take to create a labor market that matches the real skills that a worker has to the real skills required for a job, instead of just going to the default, did you go to university? And that's why I was so looking forward to today's conversation. Our guests are not only old friends, but they're also what some people call tri-sector athletes. They've spent time in the private sector, they've served in the public sector, and they're now both leading social sector organizations focused on creating a more skills-based labor market. And of course, the future of work and skills is one of the topics that at MGI we've continued to do research on. Well, I'm incredibly interested to hear what the conversation holds. Beth Cobert is the Chief Operating Officer of the Markle Foundation and the Chief Executive Officer of Skillful, a Markle Foundation initiative. She previously served as the Acting Director of the Office of Personnel Management in the U.S. government. Byron Aguist is the CEO and co-founder of Opportunity at Work. He previously served as the Deputy Director of the National Economic Council, also in the U.S. government. Beth and Byron, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here, Michael. If you don't mind, I'd love to just get a sense from from each of you about, you know, your own personal story to where you got to today. Byron, maybe we'll start with you. So, Michael, I grew up sort of 50-50 in Detroit, Michigan, and in Phoenix, Arizona. But my story, I think, doesn't start there in the sense that, you know, the way I I got to Detroit and kind of the way we got to Phoenix had to do with my, my parents' story. And when I was growing up, you know, my mom graduated from college. She was the first woman to graduate from her. It was sort of a, an architectural engineering program. And my dad did not. I mean, he basically spent a year at college. And once he married my mom, he dropped out. So that was a little bit the play. But he, he, he hadn't really found what he was passionate about. And when we were you know, when I was little in Detroit, he was he was working as a shipping clerk in a factory. You know, I just sort of wrote down what came in on the dock and what went out. And he saw an ad in the newspaper saying, learn COBOL and punch your own ticket, COBOL, C-O-B-O-L, which he didn't know really what that was, but punching his own ticket sounded like good. And so he researched it and found out it was the IBM 
mainframe computer language. And in fact, there was an enormous demand for people who could write COBOL. And it was a new language. People hadn't really been, you know, wasn't taught in college or anything. And there was this program that said, well, you know, you can learn COBOL and we can teach you COBOL. And, and so my mom had a job. She was, I mean, she was sort of an architect's assistant at that point. And there was a lot of barriers to women, you know, doing everything that they were um, qualified to do. So, but, but she had a steady job. And so it was possible for my dad to take that chance. And he, he did. He, and it turns out he learned COBOL. Now he had never worked in an office before, far less worked on technology, but he turned out to be a good COBOL programmer. But first what happened is that my mom talked someone into, in the Detroit Edison IT department, then called MIS department, management information systems. And to like give my dad a job shadow and he did a job shadow. He seemed to know some COBOL. So they hired him into an entry-level programming job. And really that change was our family's trajectory shift into the American middle class and, you know, to, to have higher earnings. And that's why we could move to Arizona because my dad literally could write his own ticket. You could get a job anywhere as a COBOL programmer at that time. And so anyway, I, that story has been very meaningful to our family and it's been very meaningful to me. And a lot of the work I'm doing right now, I think relates to that. Terrific. Beth. Well, I'm a Jersey girl, not quite born there, but raised there my entire um, adult life, went to public school in the suburbs of New York City in Montclair and, you know, spent some time in our family that I was the, the younger sibling, the girl, my brother was the boy, but in a typical role reversal of those areas, I was like the math and science person and he was the guy with words and uh, grew up you know, with my, my dad, who was the general manager of a textile company, um, both my parents born and raised in the Depression with all the things that go with it, which says that it is hard work and focusing on things that will get you ahead. Um, I spent lots of summers, my dad in this textile company, uh, our summer jobs were working in the factory, an air-conditioned factory in New Jersey in the summer, um, where I learned a lot. And one of the things I learned most was actually watching my dad and how he was so attuned to every person there and really saw the opportunity to learn from each person and what they were doing and how that could make things better. And I saw the respect he gave to every single person and I saw how much he got out of those interactions. So much so that actually two of the frontline folks who, immigrants who barely spoke English, ended up in fact under his mentorship, both growing in those roles and ultimately buying the company out from its owners. So a real proof to me in real time that if you look for talent and you listen to people, you can learn a lot. And that was a lesson that I have taken, frankly, throughout my, the rest of my career, which was more traditional. I spent decades at McKinsey with Byron. And in fact, Byron and I left within about a month of each other to join the Obama administration. And coming out of that, I you know, combined my passion for how do I help people realize their potential how do you harness the potential of government? How do you think about how you can work with the philanthropic sector and bringing those things together in what I do at Markle these days, which is really going back to the roots of what I learned from my dad, which is finding the talent that's there in the world and helping it realize its potential and knowing that that will benefit those individuals, their communities, and the companies they go to work for. Thank you both for sharing those stories, which, quite frankly, you know, are stories of economic mobility, and and that's amazing. And I, again, in full disclosure to our listeners, 
I've known uh, Beth and Byron for years uh, because of the overlap at, at McKinsey. I sometimes reflect on the difference between my lived experience and actually what happens if you look at the totality of the labor force. Uh, I mean, th- to be completely frank, I mean, first of all, I live in San Francisco, which is its own weird bubble, but there's barely anyone that I interact with on a professional basis who doesn't, you know, who didn't graduate from a four-year college and in many cases have graduate degrees. And I would love for, um, maybe Beth, start with you. If, if you just look at, say, the American labor market, I, I, maybe describe it in terms of, you know, who's actually working out there. So the people who are working, the people who are making the country run are largely people who do not have a college degree. Great talent, but not that full degree. 70% of the workforce virtually does not have a college degree. And that percentage is even higher if you look at um, black populations, Latinx populations. So when you have this model that it's just a college degree, that is the marker of whether someone can succeed and has skills and makes contributions, you are missing enormous amounts of talent. If you look at job postings for roles where they're putting college degrees on them, the majority of people in executive assistant roles don't have college degrees, yet well over two-thirds of those postings do. Why is that? There's so many places that if you really think about what are the talents people have learned that they can bring to the party. And by the way, if you learn these things in college, it's not necessarily that relevant. Like, If you studied computer science, the odds are, unless you graduate in the last five years, you were not required to take a single class in cybersecurity. It is hard to be an IT professional, a computer science person today, without knowing something about cybersecurity. So there's many ways to gain experience, and there's so much experience out there, but that's not reflected um, in the way people think. So the labor market is full of talented people, and the challenge is getting them recognized, and that's what we're working on with Byron and others uh, together to try and address that issue. Byron, I've heard you speak eloquently about some of the terms that we use to describe, quite frankly, workers, right? Low skill, high skill. I'd love for you to reflect on some of the ways in which, you know, even the language that we use causes problems. Yeah, I appreciate Beth underscoring that, you know, 70, 70% of the population and 60% of the current workforce doesn't have a bachelor's degree. But of course, um, almost everyone in the current workforce has real skills. And even if you were to take people who did graduate from high school, which is supposed to be where you know foundational skills in, in a formal education are taught, and 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 then and those who are attached to the labor market, they're gaining skills. And by the way, they've probably they've also done some training. They've on the job training. They may have been in the military. Lots of different um, sources. And you're 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 really talking about 71 million Americans who are skilled through alternative routes. So we talk about stars, skilled through alternative routes. And we say that because these are they don't have bachelor's degrees, but they do have skills. And when I speak to audiences, I would often say, so raise your hands, I'm going to have two groups. Those of you for whom the value you are adding on your job today comes mainly from what you learned in formal education, and then those of you for whom the value you're adding in the job today is mainly comes from what you've learned on the job in the course of your career. And I've never had less than 90% of the room raise their hands for it's the, you know, it's the, the, what we've learned in the course of our career in, in doing the work. And I've, I, I mean, I've had as high as like 98, 99%. And so if you really think about that, 
where does this so-called skills gap that we talk about come from? If most of the skills we have that are relevant are coming from like what we learn on the job and at work, particularly since the the financial crisis and the slow jobs recovery, you you say, look, there's tens of millions of people that we won't let into these gateway jobs, these career path jobs, these jobs that right that where they're going to be learning, and then you roll that team forward a few years, well, of course you're going to get a skills gap. But the skills gap is not the cause of the problems we have, but a lot of it is about the way we hire. I mean, when you say nobody without a bachelor's degree need apply for this job, but and we will not consider your skills, right? And so in other words, you say you've got a skills gap, but you're screening out, right, three-fifths of your job applicants who are j- just without knowing anything about the, their skills. This is the skill base that you are absolutely overlooking when you exclude people who are skilled through alternative routes, when you exclude stars. There is no job that does not require skills. The question is which skills, to which degree, in which formations. And when you, when you actually break that down and take the best evidence available through the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the ONET database, and other sources, what you find is that many, many low-wage jobs are not at all low-skilled jobs. And there are 30 million stars that, by dint of the work they are doing today, have the skills for jobs that pay at least 50% more than the jobs they're in, right? And so, but now, does this mean they don't need to learn new acronyms? No, they do. Might they need to learn a new software package, new protocols? Yes. But the core skills in the jobs they're in could could fill these middle-wage middle roles, and so we don't ever say low-skilled. The number of people who will call a job low-skilled who couldn't do that job for 15 minutes is ridiculous. I mean, honestly. So these are not, these are not low-skilled jobs. They're low-paid for a variety of reasons, including kind of structural reasons in the labor market. We talk about STARS, um, skilled through alternative routes, because it calls attention to what businesses are looking for, which is skills, as opposed to an absence of degrees. Okay, well, you know, there's a lot of things I don't have, but like I'm not defined by the absence of those things. Like I'm I'm focused on what I what I do have, what I do bring. And that's everybody should be in that situation because there are so many varieties of skills, of talents, of permutations, of people's like what everybody can be good at something. Nobody can be good at everything. And so when we say, like, oh, could these people learn how to code? Well, some can, some can't. That's true of coal miners. That's true of accountants. We, 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 we are conflating our class markers and our class biases and to some extent our racial markers and racial with, with actual skill. Let's click into this idea a little more about what that potential future of a more of a skills-based workforce might look like. Beth, maybe you could opine... So I think there's a lot of ways it would be different. And I think it starts, It start, you have to work, by the way, to make this transformation both around how employers think about what they need and how they invest in their workforce and how individuals come to understand the real value they bring to the party. Just one end or the other end is not going to solve this problem and how training fits in the middle. So you've got to look across this. So if we start with employers, because people don't get opportunities, economic opportunities, unless they have jobs, It really starts with employers understanding what is it they really need in the jobs. We've built a job posting generator that's based on skills. 
And so with one company we worked with in our early days in Colorado, they kept looking for mechanical engineers to help build these heating and cooling systems for fancy RVs. And you know what? No one was showing up. They had a skills gap. But when you looked at what they really needed, they needed someone who understood hydraulics and how to make hydraulics works. And it turns out that a diesel mechanic is actually really good at that and in many ways much better than a mechanical engineer. And so it opened up this opportunity for a whole range of folks or a lens manufacturer, you know, high-end precision lenses who ended up hiring a mix of sushi chefs and manicurists because those are people who understood that it's attention to detail. It's a repeatable task. That is what they needed to do this. So it starts with an employer understanding what do they need and what are the things that they can train someone for, right? Too many entry-level jobs assume that you already have the experience. So it's employers thinking differently about what people can bring, what's required, what's more foundational, what they can train for and how they think about that and enhancements and sourcing and looking for things differently. So it isn't just changing requirements. It's where do you go look for those folks? How do you think about how you interview them and validate those skills? We've been doing some research with some great support from McKinsey as we are trying to make this transformation in, in um, five cities where we're on the ground now in the Alliance. And what we've heard from employers who are sort of open to this idea that their biggest concerns are how do they validate skills and how do they source differently? So they're sort of ready and willing, but they don't know what to do next. And so that level of precision from the research can help us think about intervention. So employers change. Individuals need to feel like they are valued for what they bring. And as Byron said, not defined by the, what they don't have. If you have 115 out of 130 credits, you've got a lot of things you've built and skills and capabilities that you've accomplished and you're not defined by the 15 that you're missing. Then there's a piece in the middle because as you do need sometimes need some training, right? You may need to lean, learn some technical or other set of skills. And so how do you get the educational institutions of all types aligned to give people what they need when they need it in a way that they can access it that's accessible and affordable and relevant to get them to the next place. That's what a skills-based labor market looks like. It starts with skills, and that's the language we use to define things. That's where we start. So that's an amazing vision for a skills-based workforce. Byron, you mentioned that there are some structural barriers to getting there or structural barriers for workers. Why aren't we there yet already, I guess, right? If, if it's so well-recognized, if employers want it and people want it, yeah. One barrier there is not that I think people spend a lot of time on in conversations about this is that, oh, people don't want to learn new things or they're set in their ways or whatever. That is ridiculous and it's absolutely not true. I mean, people know it. And we have a lot of these conversations that imply in a way that the people we're talking about, people who are skilled through alternative routes, people who don't have bachelor's degrees, people who are stars, that they are a problem for us to solve. But they're not. They're problem solvers. And the kind of barriers to transition to the skills-based labor market have everything to do with the kind of barriers they face. So rather than take your question as to what are all the barriers, <clears throat> let me talk a little bit, flip it a little bit to say, how do we get there, right? Like, so, because there are barriers, but how do, how do we get there? And what are, I mean, what are some of the fuel we have? I mean, I, I was asked the other day why I'm working on this problem. I've worked on a lot of problems and um, in the various, you know, parts of my career, public and private, 
And I think this is the most important problem that I know for sure that we can solve. Uh, like for sure. And, and, there, and part, of, part of it is because of the way stars are working and focused, but part of it is the passion people have for it. So for example, Beth talked about knowing what skills you actually like knowing what you can do with your skills, it's honestly very hard for an individual to do that on their own. And, and if you think about your career, Michael, or yours, Beth, or mine, we didn't know exactly what we could do with our skills. We learned it, right, from other people or other systems and from mentors and coaches. And I don't see why anyone thinks it should be any different, that, right, for, for stars. So we did in our early experiments on how to match individual to companies based on their skills we we used just as a we used a mechanism for soft skills assessment because we didn't have a systematic way of doing it. We had volunteer recruiters, right, like to 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 do a soft skills assessment interview over what was then a novel thing to do it face to face over the computer. This was before everyone wasn't sick of it. Everyone thought it was kind of cool then, and and um, they would um, do twenty minutes of kind of a soft like a the rubric based soft skills assessment. These are people who had the hard skills and, you know, it was testing for soft skills, but they gave them a little feedback. And it turned out that that 10 minutes of feedback was unbelievably magical. It was so useful. Things that the recruiter might think was very basic would be real revelations to people and would be so helpful to them in the actual interviews they had. And the, and the feeling, the energy of spending half an hour of your time to, like, actually help another person who's really going for it to get there was so exciting and so rewarding for the, the interviewers themselves. They would follow up on these emails. And, and, and just give me one example. There was a, there was a gentleman who was a head waiter at a pretty high volume restaurant in Providence, Rhode Island. And he was learning software development and he was like, he was pretty, and he wanted a job at this particular company. I won't name it. And he said, you'll never get us a job. You'll never get me a job there because uh, I applied four times and they rejected me. But of course they hadn't rejected him. He'd just been screened out. And then in his, in his interview, he oh, just asked, can I pause? Yeah. What, what's yeah, the difference sure. between rejected and screened out? What, what, what well, was the actual well, difference there? Right. So, and this is really important because honestly, the way the, the, the job market works for stars right now is like, extreme gaslighting, right? So the meaning he had seen a job posting. He's like, I think I could maybe do that. He applied for the job and he got an email saying, oh, you know, we, we're not moving forward with your application. So his interpretation of that is that this company who kind of knows their business, like they had evaluated him and said, oh no, you can't do this. The search for the keyword that said he had a bachelor's degree didn't turn up. He didn't have a bachelor's degree. And so this it, it was just, he got an automatic sort of turn down without any evaluation of his skills whatsoever. So in other words, he hadn't actually learned anything. And when you consider, I mean, the reason markets are, like work is because you learn things, right? You try something. If it succeeds, great. You do more of it. If it fails, you do less of it. You change, you get some feedback, you understand what went wrong, but you don't, but you don't understand at all what went wrong. And you can apply for a hundred jobs if you're a star and you don't learn anything about what you need to do differently. He was asked by the recruiter, the volunteer recruiter, what is your experience working in teams? Tell me about your experience working in teams. And he absolutely froze up because he was like, well, I don't work in teams. You know, I just code alone in my basement. But this guy's like running crews in a restaurant, right? I mean, he, he's like way more team experience than like almost anyone that would be applying for this job. 
And and the feedback, which is again, if they, if if she'd actually been interviewing him for a job, she I, she would probably not have been able to give him this feedback, right? That no, that you 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 actually do have experience, and that was a revelation. He literally didn't know that his experience, right, working in cruise and restaurant was relevant, and it absolutely is. So it's it's just to give an illustration of what Beth was talking about earlier. You just see this all the time, and there's a there's a huge unlock there. Beth, I, you can jump in if if you want, but I just wanted to say on the other elements of transition, one of the things that's a that's a real challenge is that you do have to have a skill signal. Just like having a bachelor's degree doesn't mean you're ready to do the job, and there's no company I know of that just says if you have a bachelor's degree, you can do this job. They all use some additional way, right, of of evaluating it. So, like, you you have to have these indicators of skill, and I think part of our mission is to help build. That the data infrastructure, the connective tissue, um, that allows more and more effective skill signals to live there, because it's not just going to be one size fits all. So, like in our, you know, we've in addition to this large data set of what skills do you get on the job, so that you can take those seriously, and then in addition, you might have then these short courses that you you add to it. But the mix of work experience and training is incredibly important to be able to signal that, and we have some. Research has been done with the National Bureau of Economic Research showing that those signals don't apply in the same way to people without bachelor's degrees right now as they do to people who, who have bachelor's degrees. So there's there's that work there. And in our, we've been experimenting on an increasingly large scale in a multi-sided marketplace, Stellarworks, that allows companies that want to hire stars based on skills to do that. I mean, you can, they can just drop in the a regular job description, and we can parse it for skills. I'm actually very interested in the work that Beth and her organization are doing on skills-based resumes, because that's even better. And then we do the same kind of parsing on the training provider side, and their comp- like say a competency-based curriculum, and and then on the individual side from their resume. And we we have a product integration with Workday, Skills Cloud to synonymize those things and to to do the matching. But that allows companies. Instead of having to negotiate and sort of figure out, is this particular training provider the right one in advance before they know? They can plug in, they can try many. We have about, I think, about 50 or 60 training providers on right now and more and more every day. And we have, I don't know, about 150 companies and more and more every day. And, and that matching is very powerful because then allows, um, it also allows the feedback loop. Because as Beth knows, like a training pro- program could be 70% what you need, but how are they going to find out about the rest of the 30%? It's very kind of expensive and time-consuming. So I think that's a lot of what we need. It's not, the, the Beth and I have both worked in public sector and we both worked in private sector. And I don't know what you would say, Beth, but I think the main reason the private sector is more efficient than government is because government has to serve everybody and a whole range of needs. And in the private sector, Individual companies will target a very narrow segment and a very narrow piece of it, and they can benefit and do. They can do that because they have supply chains and distributors and sub assemblies and and so creating something that looks like, right? When I say rewire the U.S. labor market, which is a tagline of opportunity work, what I mean is making it possible for training someone well in a low income community of color to be enough, right, to grow and gain market share and to be able to plug in. You don't need to have your whole sales force big companies that that can be intermediated and that's what we're trying to do. Beth, go ahead. So I think I 
Byron and I spend lots of time together, so I agree with what he said. And I think one of the barriers, Michael, is people sometimes say, I have to change everything. And, and I've been a firm believer in my private sector and even more so in my public sector experience that the way you get change to happen is by starting with changing some things and letting those be successful. Because we know that the talent is there. We know that these individuals can be great contributors. So how do you get the flywheel going? And you often start with the coalition of the willing or at least willing to try and leave some of the skeptics to the end. And so you need to build new sets of habits for people. People, institutions have developed ways of describing themselves and looking for what they're doing that they do without thinking. And we're trying to change that. That's the way you change a habit and you do it by you know repetition, repetition, repetition. And so it's where can you get started? If you're a big company or a mid-sized company, spend a lot of time with small companies, what are the roles where you know that in fact it is highly likely that these individuals bring real talent? McKinsey did for us this fabulous piece of analysis during the pandemic about what were the, the folks who've been, who were displaced, who were thrown out of their jobs for nothing that they had done? What were job progressions that they had been able to make to what we called gateway jobs and target jobs that were actually proven ones? They had happened for real people at some level of scale. And that identifies, okay, those are jobs where you can find talent if you're looking in different places. So let's start by focusing on those gateway jobs because you know, in fact, that that front of house restaurant manager has a lot of what they need to take on a customer service role or an IT help desk role or some of these other roles. So how do you create the opportunities to make that happen? And then you can grow from those experiences because you know, that's where you build the case for success. That's what we're doing with our partners in, you know, and, and you need, by the way, to do this, you need lots of digital tools, but you also need real people with real connections, right? The person who convinced me that I was able to make the next transition in my job, that was a person, right? And it's someone I trusted. And, and how do I get those connections? And how do you get employers to try? So whether it's a different way of writing a job description, whether it's tools and digital training that we now can give to those employers to help them shift the way they do those practices. So how do you get it going in some specific things? And then people will find that, in fact, that person they hired really is that good. In fact, they're better than they thought they'd be. And they're there. So it becomes you get the flywheel moving by starting in a few places where you you've got the coalition of the willing and you know in today's market the person who's winning is the person who actually finds more talent and is more open to that because otherwise they're going to have a job that's not being filled and they're missing that opportunity so it's about getting it started on the ground and i think that's how you get there because if you try and design the whole system perfectly from the start we'll all get stuck if i can add like i so i agree with a lot of what beth just said and i think it's really important to recognize that there is there is a lot of capacity. Goodwill is a great example. You know, there's a, there's a, a goodwill within 10 miles of something like 84% of the U.S. population. And, and there's a tremendous amount of, like, energy and capability out there in the field, but it's not connected. And, you know, we have to do this together, and we have to do it in a way that brings out the strength of every part of the sector. Um, employers, for sure, but not, but not just employers. So this is amazing, and um, let, let me pull on a thread that that Byron you mentioned earlier, which is this being able to provide a skill signal. And you both know I'm a bit of a data geek, and you know, at MGI we did a lot of work on future of work. And one of the most challenging things is just trying to understand 
you know, we have competencies and skills taxonomies, credential engine, that organization says there's at least a million credentials in the United States right now. You know, do we all have to wait until there's some, you know, global skills taxonomy we all use? How, how does this thing evolve so that it actually becomes practical? Beth, maybe start with you and then Byron, feel free to jump in. Yeah. I think if we have to wait for all those taxonomies to get aligned, it will never happen. So the answer is no. But I do think there's, you know, again, there's lots of ways, and this is where data can help you, right? That how you can use big data. There's many words that describe communication skills, right? And and it's very different. The communication skills you need in interacting in a frontline customer service environment are different than the communication skills you need if you're you know, a budget analyst and are trying to explain statistics to people. And so I think this is where actually the data can help us, right? What are the ways people describe this? What are the ones that most come aligned with each other, right? So you don't need to define them all. You need sort of the equivalent of the Rosetta Stone. You know, we don't have to do the one-to-one matching. We can let the machine solve that problem for us. And that's what we started to do with some of the tools we built. I, I know by, we've all been trying to do this, say, look, you first have to start with a presumption that says, we're going to look for these things, and then you can look for the ones that are most aligned and most common with each other. And big data and AI is going to solve this one, Michael. This is a place where it actually could be really helpful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. That it's not going to be waiting for the taxonomy. I mean, so and because the the nature of it, both in terms of the what com- the comfort zone. I mean, one of the great things about big data. There's a lot of great things about big data, but they can sometimes be a bit of a black box, and it, it, it can conflict, as you know, in business with the, the the kind of the norms or the ways of thinking. So we believe there's a need for heterogeneity of approaches as we converge, right? Others might be like very assessment and task, you know, sort of performance task-based, right? And so they can apply those as, you know, or, or, or equivalents to those as signals. And so the, the, the real diversity of that and then where you want the learning is at the level of the discovery. So the, the reason we invested in a this sort of multi-sided marketplace architecture of Stellarworks is so that as new companies come in, right, they can learn because every company is saying, well, what have other companies done? Well, this is exactly what a multi-sided marketplace does, right? You can start to use the header, both the similarities among companies and what they need as something that helps them discover new sources, new alternative routes, and to make alternative routes recruiting as standard as as campus recruiting or as standard as executive recruiting. And this is important, and this is a subtlety around why we and many partners in the field believe that this this idea, this group of stars, people who are skilled through alternative routes, matters is because it's 70 million people. It's more, it's it's too big to ignore. In other words, stars need to be part of your talent strategy and thin slicing enough so it becomes part of corporate social responsibility or community relations for a number of companies. How do you know which campuses to recruit on for which things? How do you know this is your work? And so to make um, stars central is not only to elevate and to call out the, 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 the real skills and contributions and value, right? But to help move companies to the view that if they don't have a STARS recruiting strategy, if they don't have that, they are missing the boat. And by the way, it's a fact. And the companies that actually turn out to do this well are going to beat the companies that don't. 
And that's where so much of the innovation comes in this country now. It's not from people in lab coats. It's actually at the front lines, right? It's those people that Beth was talking about who are coming from the nail salons with their attention to detail and noticing things in that optics company. They are pushing the envelope of making companies better. And that's what we we need. But we need there to be not just awareness, but action. And that action has to include intention. We need companies to have STARS recruiting strategies, alternative routes recruiting strategies, and then we need a wide variety of ways, a wide variety of signals. And then, yes, there'll be lots of ways that that normalizes, and some strategies will work better than others. Some will fit better verticals than others and horizontals, and then those will win. If a market, when we say rewire the U.S. labor market, a well-functioning market, things that work gain market share. And right now, in this market for inclusive hiring, things that work don't particularly gain market share, to be honest. And so that's how you know the market is broken. And that's why we, we need the signals. And ultimately, we need the resources to flow behind that. And there's lots of resource flows you can plug it into, everything from Pell Grants on the training side to you know employer higher education benefits to you know some of the the features of you know the current legislation, which should it you know all come to pass will be interesting. And, you know, so I, I think there's a lot of work to do, but there's a lot of people that do that work. And, you know, work is solving problems and we've got some problems. So here we go. Well, this has been incredibly inspiring. There's so many more other things that I'd love to talk about. You know, we, we all sit in the United States. There are other countries. What do we have to learn from them? What, if we do have just one more minute, I would love to go through a quick lightning round of quick questions and quick answers with you. All right, here we go. All right. What's your favorite source of information about the labor market? Byron. Uber drivers. Beth. That was going to be my answer. Uber drivers. Or Lyft drivers. Okay, Lyft, Lyft, Lyft drivers too. <laughs> Actually, but literally, it is asking people, right? How'd you get to where you're going? What are you doing there, right? Beth, what was your first job? My first job was in my father's factory, folding fabric. You could do uh, taking two-yard pieces and folding them so they could fit into a six-inch wide envelope. Byron, what was your first job? My first part-time job was as a Teen Gazette reporter, paid by the column inch to let inform the people of the you know Valley of the Sun what was going on in Northeast Phoenix high schools. And then my first full-time job was as a a law library assistant, in which I did a lot of photocopying and became very adept at sort of speed photocopying before they had all these fancy. Feature. So I guess I've been sort of automated out of a job in that sense. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of shelving books, which is great because I love books. Byron, if you weren't doing what you're doing now at Opportunity at Work, what would you be doing? Um, I might be catching up on a long list of, of great books that I've been missing for the last 30 years. Beth? So if you told me I wasn't going to be working... I would actually be learning more about big data encoding because I sort of miss that and I want to know more about it. Beth, what one policy would you recommend to improve the functioning of the labor force? Public policy. Public policy. There are so many, but one I'll pick is recognizing that for people to have the opportunity to get to training, they need not just training, but they need support around training. I think if you could wave a wand, which you can't you would you would want to have 
a little bit more of a take or pay system for employers in training. So in other words, employers who do a lot of training should like spend that money and employers who don't do much training and basically free ride by sort of poaching other people's, you know, trained employees maybe would have to pay into the pot for kind of a much, a much more robust, you know, kind of common sort of pool for training dollars, which is just, it's, it's really anemic. It, we spend, you know, like 10% of what we did in real terms before and much less than other countries that are doing it well. And then the only other thing I would say is people should have income support when they're learning, basic, like basic income to rise, not just basic income to stop you from falling through the bottom. The biggest barrier to adult learning and, and, and do is, is not necessarily the tuition, it's, it's the living expenses. How do you pay your rent? How do you feed your kids while you do it? And every, like, when you're ready to make your move and there's a real opportunity, you should have that support. I would, that's, if I, wand waving, that's what I would do probably more than anything else. Byron, what's the one thing corporations can do to improve the functioning of the labor force? I, I think the one thing, if you had to do one thing today, is to remove bachelor's degree requirements because it just it it bars so many different people. But that's the beginning, not the end. And I think companies could do a lot and and would have a high ROI to invest in the talent supply chain through their physical supply chain, through their suppliers, because if suppliers don't have the money to invest as fully in training as they do, but their suppliers are actually where they're getting their talent because people are, they're poaching and people are self-poaching from them. Beth? So I'll, I'm assuming that Byron has waved his magic wand and we've removed bachelor's requirements. So I think the next piece is really actually having companies understand in a much more granular way the real benefits to them of investing in their workforce, finding different sources of talent that they don't do very well. I think, you know, having watched the transformation of human resources management over the course of my long, it's been a long time now, you know, most people who went into human resources management didn't go because they liked doing financial analysis and numbers. That is not, you know, if you go back to the transformation in marketing, right? It was the creative people who didn't do math. If you go to a marketing department today, everybody there is all about data and analytics and numbers. And I think we need a similar transformation in businesses and human resources because if you could really understand and pay attention and keep track of what it costs when you have that turnover, what it means to have an employee who's there, who knows your company really well and could step up to the next role, What's the cost of trying to find them? What's the return on their loyalty? Because when you invest in them, people often invest back in you. And, if, and I think greater visibility to that would make companies realize that it is in their interest to look at this talent and realize that the talent's there. And I don't think they have good mechanisms for doing that now. And what's one piece of advice you have for listeners of this podcast, Beth? I'd say for each of them, the next time you are thinking about a role to fill in your organizations, Think about what are the skills you really need and the many, many places you can go to find it. In some hiring decision, think about what you can do in the roles you're touching. Byron? I absolutely agree with that. And it's not just externally, it's internally to make sure that when you think about um, pathways within your company, that you're thinking about frontline workers who, you know, and forget about this whole exempt versus non-exempt sort of distinction people make a big deal about, like what are the the skills people are learning? And by the way, if you are operating your frontline in a way that they're not developing, 
like the skills for the next level, then you're also making a mistake. And so you should you should fix that and then, you know, have people have people move much more mobility within your company. Bye, Renegades. Beth Colbert, thank you very much. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com forward slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Janet Bush. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren.